You didn't see Republicans when we had control of the Senate try to rig the game. What? You didn't see us try to pack the court. What? Are you trying to make my head explode in the first five seconds of the show, Dad? Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. Good God. I got the feeling that something ain't right. No, it ain't. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me. Jokers to the right. Here I am. Stuck in the middle with you. I am. From Pacific. Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles. This is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA. Also in California in Red Bluff and Redding on KFOI, Round Mountains, KKRN, and Eureka's KGOE. Up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO, and Eugene's KEPW. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU. In Columbus, Ohio on WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP, Rochester, New York's WRFZ. Down in New Orleans on WHIV, out in Gallup, New Mexico on KNIZ. In Concord, New Hampshire on WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ. In Seattle on KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR. And, of course, Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM 950, KTNF. We also stream coast-to-coast and around the globe for you every day on the internets, on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, No Lies Radio, Burden Square Radio, and Detour Talk, Blanketing Planet Earth, five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman. Your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow says me from bradblog.com. Thank you very much for joining us today, and welcome to the Bradcast. So, yes, I know, I know, I opened our previous Bradcast by noting that while talk radio is uh, usually all about outraging listeners, uh, that we we just don't roll that way here on the Bradcast, Desi <laughs> Doyen. This is true. Uh, mostly. Our, uh, mostly. Our our mission is to inform and to educate listeners, hopefully in a moderately somewhat entertaining way, so that you want to keep listening, all in the hopes of having a more informed electorate. I believe that's our job. I believe that's our mission. I believe that's what the... Uh, Constitution has uh, granted dispensation to the media for, so we try to honor that. Uh, But, well, this is one of those days, I'm afraid, when informing you is also likely to outrage you. At least uh, it certainly did me as I was preparing for my guest today. We are not yet to the big series of opinion days on the on the 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 biggest cases that we await from the U.S. Supreme Court this session. The uh, first one with the newly constituted six to three right wing court, including a full three Trump appointees, Neil Gorsuch, Brett Kavanaugh, and for the first time this year now, Amy Coney Barrett. But on Thursday, they offered us a bit of a warm up for the big opinions that are still to come and unfortunately also offered an alarming indication 
of what could be in store when opinions are released on the usually biggest of the court cases that are held until the very end of the session in June, in time for the nine privileged members of the court with lifetime job guarantees to take several months off in a row, unlike most everyone else in the country. So if the court is now uh, warming us up for what is to come, I guess we better start warming up as well ourselves. As we tend to lean heavily on our friends, Slate.com's great constitutional law and Supreme Court correspondent, Mark Joseph Stern, during the final weeks of the session. We might as well start leaning on him today after the court's exceedingly disturbing opinion in a case called Jones v. Mississippi was released on Thursday, which is exceedingly disturbing, frankly, in a whole bunch of ways. Not only for the 6-3 to three majority decision by all six Republicans appointed to the stolen and packed court, not only for the opinion itself, not only for the people that will be dramatically affected by it forever, not only for the fact that this particular opinion was written for the majority by Justice Brett Kavanaugh, of all people, not only for the fact that it also overturns long-standing court precedent, and not only for the fact that the majority pretended that it doesn't, but also for what it may portend for the weeks ahead, much less the years ahead, unless Democrats can quickly at this point figure out that they better come to their senses and figure out how to reform the U.S. Supreme Court before we see a boatload of similarly and even more disturbing cases. Here to disturb us with the full story on Jones v. Mississippi and the many ways in which it's far more troubling than it might seem just based on the decision itself, which is already disturbing, is, of course, the one and only Mark Joseph Stern of Slate.com. Welcome back to the broadcast, amigo. Happy to be here, even under such gloomy circumstances. You can yeah. lean on me anytime, Brad. <laughs> Thank you, sir. Uh, to be clear, by the way, uh, you aren't always the bearer of bad news on this program. It just kind of seems like it sometimes, Mark. <laughs> Thank you for that clarification. Yes. I am not... The Grim Reaper, just a messenger. For That's him. right. That's right. That would be Mitch McConnell, of course, as he's told us before. Uh, there are so many things that disturb me about this case, Mark. I'm not even sure to where to begin. Judging from your coverage yesterday at Slate, in which you described the opinion for the majority by Kavanaugh as, quote, one of the most dishonest and cynical decisions in recent memory. It's clear that you are similarly bothered here as well. So let's just begin with the specifics of this case, if you can explain it. And uh, sort of somewhat lost here, what we know about the plaintiff uh, and how the court ruled here. And then we'll delve into what else is arguably even more disturbing, I think, about how this was handed down. Uh, as Justice uh, Sotomayor uh, 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 made very clear in her dissent on behalf of the minority and, and what it could portend for the new, yes, stolen 6-3 to three, uh, court moving forward. So on the case itself, Mark, what should we know? Yeah, so this is the latest 
decision in a line of cases from the Supreme Court about juvenile life without parole, um, which those of us in the business often call JLWAP because it's such a mouthful. Mm -hmm. Uh, And the Supreme Court has strictly, strictly limited in the past the imposition of juvenile life without parole. The court first banned mandatory sentences of JLWAP, said the judge has to have discretion to impose a lesser sentence. And then the court also explained that really judges are never allowed to impose this sentence except in extreme and unusual circumstances where the defendant's crime demonstrated uh, permanent incorrigibility and corruption. Mm -hmm. So the court said, look, you know, we're not going to outright ban juvenile life without parole, but it can only be handed down in those rarest of cases where there is overwhelming evidence that the defendant is so depraved and so beyond rehabilitation that there is no chance that they could ever improve behind bars. Um, And these are obviously really important decisions Mm -hmm. because there were at the time thousands and still are about 1,500 people in prison who were sentenced to life for crimes they committed as children, often under the age of 16 or 15. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's important to note here, the science on brain development has shown us that children and teenagers have less control over their impulses. They have less control over reckless and violent behavior because their brains are underdeveloped. Mm. They have greater potential for rehabilitation because as they grow older, Mm -hmm. they will change not just their outlooks, but their actual brains, their frontal lobes Mm -hmm. will mature. And so the Supreme Court said in the past, we've got to give these children a second chance. Uh, We've got to make it nearly impossible for them to be held in prison for their entire lives, condemned to die behind bars for something they did when they were youth. That's where the law stood before Thursday. And on Thursday, Brett Kavanaugh and the other conservative Republicans on the Supreme Court stepped in and stomped all over that and essentially overturned that principle and those rules and uh, declared open season on juvenile life without parole once again. And and let me just, if you could, Mark, uh, give us an idea about this particular plaintiff, even though this affects, as you said, you know, some 1,500 people in uh, facing a life without parole, uh, you know, who committed crimes as children. Talk, Tell me about this particular uh, uh, case of, uh, uh, was it Brent, Brent Jones, Brian Jones? Brett, Brett, Brett Jones. Brett Jones, yeah. yeah. I, I'm really glad you asked that because he did get lost in this litigation. Yeah. And he's actually a model figure, a perfect example of why juvenile life without parole is such a barbarous and unfair practice. So this is an individual who grew up in a badly broken, impoverished home. Mm -hmm. Uh, He was beaten by his father who left, and then he was beaten by his stepfather who openly hated him uh, and basically said he wanted him to die. Uh, His stepfather also beat his mother. Uh, He had terrible hallucinations and psychiatric problems. He was placed on antidepressants, but because the beating was so gruesome, his grandparents picked him up and took him to their house where he lost access to his psychiatric medications. 
And then 23 days after his 15th birthday, his grandfather was beating him one day, and he just lost it and stabbed his grandfather, and his grandfather died. Now, look, am I defending this child killing his grandfather? Of course not. You know, it's a tragic crime. But this is a 15-year-old who is subject to abuse and neglect all his life, Mm -hmm. who is going through withdrawal from serious psychiatric medications. Now he's 31. He spent more time in prison than he has out of it. He is fully rehabilitated. He is a model inmate. He has earned his GED. He works behind bars. He leads Bible studies. He is considered one of the best. You know, a prison guard considers him his son, almost like Mm. he's a father figure Mm. to him. Uh, This is not someone who should still be in prison now, let alone for the next 50, 60 years until he dies. And that is something that Sotomayor talks about in her dissent, that the majority papers over and ignores, because I think it would reveal just how heartless their decision is. And before we get to Sotomayor's dissent, what uh, Kavanaugh did here was, uh, as you say, the, the precedent was that there could be life without uh, uh, life in prison without parole so long as the judge made a very specific finding that this person can never be rehabilitated. Is, is that correct? Is that what yeah. was required with, with previously? The, that's, that's exactly what the previous decision said, with the caveat that the court anticipated that that would almost never happen. And there could be, uh, could they have received life in prison, but without the extra notion that oh, they can never be paroled? Would that have been allowed previously? So previously, they had to have some opportunity of early release, Mm -hmm. and different states had interpreted this differently. Uh, Some granted compassionate release once they grew grew into old age. Others allowed immediate resentencing and released a lot of people very early. Um, you, You know, there were different approaches in different states, but the upshot was there had to be some opportunity for an early release if the individual can demonstrate their rehabilitation. Now, there is no amount of irony, it seems to me, in the fact that this uh, opinion was written by Justice Brett Kavanaugh, who I noticed uh, when you when you started tweeting about this on Thursday, Mark, uh, one of your commenters on Twitter said, wait, uh, this was uh, written by Brett. What I did when I was young doesn't matter. Kavanaugh? Of all people to write this particular opinion, the guy who, you know, during his confirmation hearing says, yeah, it doesn't matter what I did when I was a kid. It doesn't matter if I drank a lot of beer. It doesn't matter if I was, uh, you know, alleged to have committed sexual assault. That was when when I was a kid. You can't hold that against me now. Right. Uh, It's ghastly and ironic and i mean ironic feels like too light a term for it it's it's revolting that this individual who went before the senate and said you know none of this stuff i did when i was a kid matters now i you know i'm a better man could then turn around and write this cold-hearted opinion just dismissing all of the evidence of this individual's rehabilitation and saying yes he will have to die in prison for something he did 23 days after his 15th birthday and and as bad as that decision is as horrific as it is that it comes from uh, a Kavanaugh himself uh, there's really a larger picture here that it makes all of this, I think, even more disturbing. 
Um, you, you, as you note, court precedent in these two previous cases established clearly that, uh, as you write, juvenile life with, uh, without parole is unconstitutional for all but the rarest of juvenile offenders, those whose crimes reflect permanent incorrigibility, and they forbade judges from imposing these sentences unless they actually found that the defendant's crime reflected, quote, irreparable corruption. But that was the precedent. Here, Kavanaugh not only overturned that precedent, but pretended that he wasn't overturning that precedent? Yes, that's exactly what Kavanaugh did. And Justice Sotomayor, in her dissent, called him out on this in remarkably explicit terms. She said that the court guts precedent without even trying to justify it or admitting what it's doing, but is fooling no one. Um, And it's worth really spelling out what Kavanaugh does here. Um, He takes these two landmark decisions Mm -hmm. that, as as I've just explained, impose a substantive limit Mm -hmm. on judges' ability to, to, to issue a life without parole sentence. And he rewrites them, eviscerates all of their substance, and says that the only rule these decisions establish, the only one, is that the judge has to theoretically have the opportunity, the the option, to issue a lesser sentence. So as long as the judge was not legally required to issue a sentence of juvenile life without parole, then the, the sentence is lawful and constitutional. And I just don't know how to put it in any starker terms. That is a lie. That is a deception. That is deceit. That is not what precedent says. And just to, be, just to, just to add a little note mm-hmm. here, uh, Clarence Thomas, Clarence freaking Thomas Mm -hmm. actually refused to join Brett Kavanaugh's decision, and I'll give him credit for this, because he said, look, I don't agree with these precedents either, but I would rather just own up to what we're doing and overturn them outright than pretend to follow them while eviscerating them like Brett Kavanaugh does. Yeah, and that was what, and and you said she was, you know, Sotomayor was very stark in her response here. She says, uh, Kavanaugh is, quote, fooling no one. The court distorts Miller and Montgomery. Those were the two previous cases, the the longstanding precedents, uh, distorts them beyond recognition. Uh, Mark Joseph Stern, in recent years, some have, uh, you know, have sort of regarded Chief Justice John Roberts as, and I don't want to overstate this, but as having a a reasonable sort of moderating effect on the court. But he signed on to Kavanaugh's opinion as well, correct? He did. So wouldn't we expect a reasonably moderate person here if he were actually an honest broker to at least require as chief justice to I don't know if that's his place. Is he allowed to require the opinions author to at least acknowledge that he is blowing away precedent here and to justify that in some way? Uh, you might think so, but we have our answer. The answer is no. The chief didn't have any qualms, it seems, about signing on. And it's worth pointing out here that the chief justice actually joined the second of these precedents, the more important one that imposed this very clear substantive limit on juvenile life without parole. The chief justice joined the majority, joined Anthony Kennedy and the liberals in this decision. And now five years later, he's turned around and silently signed on to another decision that guts that precedent. And, And I think that we can maybe kind of glean a pattern here from the chief justice. 
which is, you know, he does not want to be a dissenter. He wants to be with the majority when he can. We've known this about the chief forever. He doesn't like dissenting. Mm. When there's already five votes for something, he sometimes does join just to create a little bit more of a lopsided majority. And I suspect that's what's going on in both of these cases. You know, last time around, there was still Kennedy on the court. There was mm-hmm. still a, a, a few more liberal justices. And he said, sure, I'll join. But now the court has veered far in the other direction. He doesn't want to look like he's losing control over his own court. So he joins another decision mm-hmm. that eviscerates the last one. And, you know, for people who don't watch the Supreme Court as closely as you do or even as I do, uh, you know, they may have heard the term stare decisis. Every time we, we get a new uh, nominee to the court, there are questions about do they believe in stare decisis, which is essentially respect uh, for precedent, for these long-standing precedents, and that's sort of a, I guess, a, a, a guide uh, for people to know: Hey, are you going to overturn, uh, you know, cases like Roe v. Wade, or are you going to respect the fact that even if you don't agree with them? Uh, they are established precedent. And every time, whether it's a, a, a Democratic appointee, a nominee or a, a Republican nominee, they all come in and they pretend that, oh, yes, we I totally agree with longstanding precedent. I'm a big believer in starry decisis. But uh, Sotomayor, in her dissent here, points out and actually quotes Kavanaugh himself um, and his comments about overturning uh, precedent that he just completely ignores here. What did he say that the, the law we need to respect uh, 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 precedent uh, because it is founded in the law rather than in the proclivities of individuals? She called him out on that. I, <laughs> what now? What's his <laughs> does he respond to that or do we just no. all ignore it and pretend none of this is going on? So when you've got six votes, you don't feel like you need to respond, and that's what we saw from Kavanaugh. He did not really try to defend himself. Uh, Instead, he plucked a few quotes out of context from these past decisions to make it seem like he was adhering to precedent, and then mostly blew off Justice Sotomayor, even though, as you noted and as I said in my article, she specifically and very conspicuously used Brett Kavanaugh's own words, his own praise for precedent. But, you know, we, we should drill down here a little, because it's important to know what's going on. You said that, you know, every time there's a nominee to the Supreme Court, they go before the Senate and they say, I believe in stare decisis, mm-hmm. I believe in precedent, right? And they say, well, we, you know, of course, sometimes precedent has to be overturned, Brown versus Board of Education, you know, that overturned a decision. But there always has to be a special justification. Mm-hmm. There has to be some good, strong, unusual reason why the court should revisit its own precedent. Mm-hmm. And what Brett Kavanaugh did in this case, and Sotomayor points this out, is short-circuit that process and basically create a cheat code, a kind of loophole, wherein the court can overturn precedent without identifying a special justification, without identifying an, uh, an unusually compelling reason, because it doesn't even have to admit that it's overturning precedent. Yeah. It can just lie yeah. and pretend that it's following it. And in the abortion context, this is going to be really salient, I think, yeah. because we're going to see Brett Kavanaugh doing this in abortion cases as well, pretending to adhere to precedent so that he doesn't have to find some good, good reason to overturn it, while in practice gutting a woman's right to an abortion. This is the big picture that I'm looking uh, that I'm looking at that I'm very concerned about. And and uh, Mark Joseph Stern, you've got a another article today 
uh, actually out of Florida, the Florida Supreme Court, that uh, you didn't tie them together. I did as I was reading it, because, you know, as, as Sotomayor put it in the, the, the Jones v. Mississippi case, Kavanaugh uh, reprised Justice Scalia's dissenting view in those uh, from those earlier cases um, and simply turned what he said into law in this case as if, you know, Scalia wasn't in the minority on those previous cases. Well, it appears that the newly right wing state Supreme Court in Florida has now done the exact same thing regarding a people's ballot initiative to get a referendum on the ballot in 2022 to legalize recreational marijuana, as you write today. Sounds like they did the same exact thing here, no? Yes, that, that's a great connection to draw. You know, you're really putting me to shame. I should have been the one to draw it first. Yeah, you should have. <laughs> um, here, here's what happened in Florida, and it'll sound familiar because of our conversation about the, the Kavanaugh mm-hmm. case. Yeah. Uh, years ago, the Florida Supreme Court was liberal, and it approved the wording of a ballot initiative to amend the Florida Constitution to allow medical marijuana. Mm-hmm. The state Supreme Court gets to decide whether the wording of these initiatives is uh, satisfactory or whether it's misleading and unfair. And there was a challenge because the, the initiative did not explicitly say, oh, by the way, federal law still bans marijuana. It'll still be illegal under a federal statute. It just won't be illegal for medical use under Florida law. And the Florida Supreme Court said quite reasonably, you know, we expect citizens to understand and know the law. Mm-hmm. You know, ignorance of the law is no excuse to commit a crime. Mm-hmm. And for the same reason, we're just going to assume that citizens voting on this have informed themselves, have the background and education to, to realize that a, a state ballot initiative cannot amend federal law, mm-hmm. right? So we're not going to make this initiative go through paragraph after paragraph explaining the interplay between federal and state law here. Mm-hmm. Fast forward to this week, and the Florida Supreme Court is super conservative, super duper conservative, the most conservative state Supreme Court in the country. And another ballot initiative comes before it to figure out if the wording is lawful. And by the way, and that was that was after the uh, medic, uh, the medical marijuana uh, initiative, I, I believe, did pass with big yes, numbers, by, right? by 71% right. of the vote, okay. easily yeah. passed. Right. So, so we've got medical weed in Florida, but recreational weed is still illegal. And so now there's a push to legalize recreational weed. Not really a big story in 2021, by mm-hmm. the way, but whatever, Florida's Florida. Right. So the state Supreme Court takes this case under, advise, under advisement, sits on it for a full year to run down the clock, and then issues a decision that was the exact opposite of its previous decision, in which the two conservative dissenters from the Mm -hmm. previous decision turned their dissent into the majority and said, actually, this time around, we're going to force you to explain that federal law still bans marijuana, and so we're going to throw this off the ballot. We're going to force you to start all over again, collecting signatures, raising money, and guess what? Because we sat for a year before issuing this decision, you've run out of time, and now you have to start looking to 2024. <laughs> oh, man. And so, again, they took a, a, a dissent from an earlier case, and yep. now that the, the makeup of the court has changed, they're just sort of pretending that the dissent was actually the decision and they're applying it here, even though it is completely the opposite of the previous cases. This uh, sort of I, t- I took two things from this, Mark. Uh, it, it tells me that 
uh, one of the things is that years of, you know, pretending to oppose judicial activism uh, by the GOP are just that pretend. As usual, Republicans seem to charge the Democrats and liberals do exactly what it is that the right wingers are actually doing, because that's what they did in the uh, Supreme Court case, uh, Jones v. Mississippi, that we discussed, uh, and here in the pot case in Florida. They are doing what they want, not what the law says, not what precedent says. They are being the uh, activist uh, judges that they, you know, pretend the Democrats are going to be. Yes, that's absolutely right. I mean, look, there's no way to read this decision from the Florida Supreme Court um, as an actual legal document. It's so ridiculous. It doesn't make any sense except as the policy position of five justices on the Florida Supreme Court who don't like weed and don't think that the state's voters should have an opportunity to legalize recreational weed. That's not supposed to be their job, but they've decided to make it their job, and Mm -hmm. because it's conservatives and Republicans doing it, we don't call it judicial activism. Right, exactly. And, by the way, in a similar vein, uh, which I think you also speak to, you know, after years of pretending by Republicans to believe in smaller government, that, you know, people on the ground, the local, but they know their needs the best. Well, in Florida, here with a ballot initiative, we're talking about the very smallest of government, actual people putting something themselves that they support onto the ballot and having people vote directly on it, only to be told that they are not allowed to do that in this case. Yes. And it's it's worth pointing out here there is a, one of the dissenters in this case was actually a conservative Republican, but he's one who really does. We'll give it to him, mm-hmm. we'll give him the credit. He does believe in self governance and mm-hmm. in small government, and he sounds so outraged that his <laughs> colleagues turn out to be frauds in his dissent. Yeah. I mean, it's almost like he's realizing all of a sudden, you guys are lying about this. Yeah. You know, you are not putting your money where your mouth is. And it's kind of incredible to watch another conservative justice wake up and tell his colleagues, you guys are hypocrites. Well, I would say a real conservative justice versus pretend conservatives, which so many people that call themselves conservatives these days actually are, which is why I don't tend to call them conservatives. I intend to I tend to call them Republican or right winger. They are not conservatives. The that that one dissenter down there in Florida is the very rarest of exceptions these days. Uh, So, you know, between this newly right wing Florida Supreme Court and the newly right wing U.S. Supreme Court. These are very foreboding decisions. Let me uh, take a quick break here, Mark. I, I want to talk about uh, quickly what decisions are coming down the, the road very soon from the U.S. Supreme Court that all of this may inform us about uh, so that we can all be sort of somewhat prepared uh, and uh, and about the various efforts to reform the court uh, by Democrats. So, Mark, sit tight for a quick second. Let me take a quick break. We will come back with that. Mark Joseph Stern of Slate.com is is ahead on that. I'm Brad Friedman, and you are listening to The Bradcast. (laughs) 
What the public hears on the public airwaves matters. At the Bradcast, we do our best to bring you accurate news and analysis on the issues that actually matter, and we do it all independently without corporate or political influence. But we can't do it without you, now more than ever. Please help us stay on your public airwaves by going to bradblog.com donate to help keep us going. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. Lean on me when you're not strong, and I'll be your friend. I'll help you carry on. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from Bradblog.com. As uh, we do this time of year, we are leaning on our old friend. Slate, Slate's Mark Joseph Stern, who we absolutely love, even if he tends to show up here and ruin our day. Uh, I want to get to uh, some of the cases that we should be uh, concerned about, some of the decisions that are about to be handed down within the next few weeks. But first, Mark, last week, Democratic Senator Ed Markey of Massachusetts and Congressman Jerry Nadler of New York, the uh, chair of the House Judiciary Committee, Uh, along with some co-sponsors, Hank Johnson of Georgia, Mondaire Jones of New York, introduced a bill to expand the Supreme Court from nine to 13 justices, which, by the way, makes sense, if only because, if I understand this correctly, 150 years ago, when the current number of nine justices was settled on, as I understand it, it was because there were nine U.S. circuits at the time, with each justice overseeing one of those uh, circuits. But now there are 13 circuits. Your your thoughts on the uh, on the Democratic proposal in the Senate and the House? Yeah, well, I think it's unfortunate that Nancy Pelosi immediately threw cold water on this bill. But obviously, this is a huge step forward for court reform. For the first time in our lifetimes, we're actually seeing. Uh, Democratic legislators coming together and putting forth a serious proposal that reforms the Supreme Court by adding seats. And, and, and you put it exactly right. For many years, there were as many seats as there were circuit courts, uh, nine seats for nine circuit courts back in the 1870s. But now there are 13 circuit courts, and that would suggest that we need 13 justices. Of course, the broader reason for this is to balance out the uh, ideological partisanship of the court. And I don't think Democrats should run from that. You know, there are all kinds of good government reasons, all kinds of historical reasons for this reform. But Democrats shouldn't run from the fact that this is still, as you put it correctly, a stolen Supreme Court, Mm -hmm. and that Republicans should not be allowed to keep their ill-gotten gains from their deal with the devil with Trump. You know, they should not be able to hold on to the Supreme Court for a generation because they made this deal with a criminal con man lunatic to get judges in exchange for tolerating and supporting him. Well, of course, you say it's a a stolen Supreme Court. And of course, I say it's a stolen Supreme Court. Uh, Senator Ted Cruz, however, and I, I'm very sorry. This won't it, this won't take long at all. I'm sorry to play his, you know, the screechy noise of Ted Cruz saying something, but he actually had the temerity to say this on Thursday. You didn't see Republicans when we had control of the Senate try to rig the game. <laughs> you didn't see us try to pack the court. Okay, Mark. Um, I'm going to let you respond to this one because my head has already exploded enough times for one single day. Simple. 
Republicans are the ones to introduce the idea of altering the number of seats on the Supreme Court for partisan gain, and now we're just haggling over the numbers. It was Republicans who shrank the Supreme Court down to eight seats for more than a year by refusing to even consider Barack Obama's nominee to replace Justice Scalia, Merrick Garland, who luckily is now Attorney General, which is a great thing, but he should be on the Supreme Court, of course. When Ted Cruz says stuff like that, he's just gaslighting, he's just reversing victim and offender. It's classic Ted Cruz nonsense, and there's not even any use letting your head explode over it. Thank you. I'll try to not, but uh, it's too late. Um, and then, never mind all of this, because Joe Biden, who I have otherwise been largely pleased with, mostly, uh, has has not called for expansion of the courts. He instead has called for a bipartisan sort of blue ribbon commission of experts to examine the idea of whether we should reform both SCOTUS and the federal court system overall. Uh, this uh, commission supposedly will will issue a report in six months after holding various, uh, I guess, public hearings and so forth. Uh, but, Mark, is this his way of sort of kicking the can down the road and making the issue disappear altogether, as tends to happen when we have these bipartisan blue ribbon commissions. And by the way, have you been asked to participate in this panel of experts? No, I have not. And I should Outrageous. say that my disappointment over that is not the reason I don't like this panel. <laughs> I, I don't like this panel because, frankly, even though I have immense respect for a lot of its members, and there are a few who I think should be on the panel, like Sherilyn Eiffel of the NAACP LDF, for the most part, these are either Federalist Society conservatives centrists or left-leaning academics who have no record of supporting court reform, of sticking their neck out mm. when it really mattered and saying, here's a problem. The Supreme Court is a problem. These are people who work very hard in their careers to avoid public controversy. And it seems that the White House must have picked them for a reason, probably that reason. Mm. This is not a recipe for action. This is not a recipe for real reform. It's a recipe for kicking the can down the road and trying to diffuse the issue. That said, given that SCOTUS season is upon us and will be upon us every June for the rest of our lives, I don't know if Biden can really diffuse it for as long as he seems to think he can. Because of the decisions that we may find out about in the next couple of weeks, which will yeah. light off enough outrage that maybe even Joe Biden will come around. So... I guess that's what you're saying. With that in mind, uh, what opinions are coming down the road? Mark Joseph Stern in the next few weeks uh, before the session ends that we can uh, plan to have you back on to ruin our day with at that point. Um, what are you what are you now most, I guess, concerned about as we wait for these um, rulings? The first rulings really by this newly right wing six to three U.S. Supreme Court. So there's still this challenge to the Affordable Care Act, this ridiculous attempt mm -hmm. to destroy the entire Affordable Care Act um, that has no basis in law, that's openly partisan. Uh, and yet the Supreme Court has now been sitting on it for months and months and months, which I take to be very worrisome. Oh. Because one would think that if the court recognized the frivolity of this case, that if the justices understood this was a ridiculous uh, effort by political people to destroy a law they could not destroy politically, 
that they would have just issued a very brief decision months ago saying, no, we're not doing this. But mm. instead, the mystery has grown. The court is still dealing with this case, which I think every, every week that it goes by when the court has not issued a decision here makes me more worried that the court's going to do something crazy, mm. like strike down protections for pre-existing conditions because they don't like the Affordable Care Act and there's six conservatives, so why not? And this was a case that they could have decided, they, they heard it a long time ago, for a while it seemed like people were saying, well, they're not going to, they could have come out with their decision, if I recall, even before the election, right? Or, or right around the election? That's right. There was an effort to expedite this case to make it go quickly because, you know, so many people's lives and health are on the line mm -hmm. here and because the lower court decision is so obviously wrong. But the Supreme Court refused to expedite it, instead punted it till after the election. And, and that, in one sense, is arguable. OK, we don't want to affect the election with it. But now the election, we're at least 100 days past it. Still no decision from them. That delay, I'm going to write down, Mark Joseph Stern is quite worried. All right, what else do we have to uh, look forward to? So we've got Fulton versus Philadelphia, which I'm also very worried about. I think it's clearly going to come out the wrong way. This is a case in which a, a Catholic foster care agency demands funding from the city of Philadelphia. This is a contractor with the city, and it argues that it violates the First Amendment for Philadelphia not to provide contract funding to this foster care agency uh, unless and until it works with same-sex couples. I, I, this is such a bizarre case to me, because what the, what the foster care agency is asking for here isn't an end to some kind of discrimination. They're not even asking for a change in the law. They're asking the Supreme Court to issue some kind of unprecedented order forcing a city to resume a contracting relationship with a contractor. I mean, how far beyond the First mm. Amendment have we gone here? Mm. <sighs> Anything else? I know there's this abortion question. It's not a case per se, not a decision in the case per se, but a, a, a question about whether the court will take this case at all. Is, is that a, a Missis, uh, another Mississippi case, if I remember? Yes, remember that? yes. So, so we know the court doesn't care about children sentenced to life without parole. We right. know the court doesn't care about children in foster care, right. because it's almost certainly going to say that foster care agencies have a right not to work with same-sex couples. But there is one thing the Supreme Court cares about, and that's fetuses, of course, unborn children. This Supreme Court is going to gut abortion rights. We don't know exactly when or how, but Mississippi has tried to get the ball rolling by banning abortions after 15 weeks. That is very obviously unconstitutional. Uh, and yet, the Supreme Court has been sitting on this case for months now, a very unusual amount of time, which suggests either that they're going to grant and that it's going to be a huge deal and they're scared to do it because it'll cause a huge firestorm, or they're refusing to grant the case, but someone's writing a really angry dissent. <laughs> Watch that case every time the court does anything, because it could be the beginning of the end of row. Okay. Well, with that fantastic news, as usual, Mark Joseph Stern, uh, I suspect we'll be talking to you again uh, soon, hopefully uh, frequently, uh, even more hopefully with some better news in the weeks ahead, but we'll find out. I know you don't make the decisions. You just outrage us with them. Mark Joseph <laughs> Stern can be found at Slate.com. You can and should follow him for the latest on the Twitters at MJS underscore DC. Uh, always great speaking with you, my friend. Uh, whether it's good news or bad, uh, thank you so much, and we'll talk soon. Always a pleasure, even in the darkest of times. Yep. 
And we do seem to have a lot of them uh, <laughs> of these uh, recent years. Okay, let's take a quick break. I can't leave. I can't just leave everyone on this down note. <laughs> okay. So uh, some slightly more encouraging news. Actually, I can't leave myself on that down note. Some slightly more encouraging news straight ahead on the Bradcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Don't touch that dial. Hey, this is Brad. Our nightmare election may be over, but new ones are on the way. Here at the Bradcast and bradblog.com, we fight for election integrity all year around, like no other media outlet in the nation. But of course, we need your help to do it. Please stop by bradblog.com donate to make an automated monthly pledge of any amount you like or even just a one-time-only contribution to help us remain on your public airwaves and completely independent. The fight for voting rights, civil rights, and to save our planet continues. Please help us continue that fight independently over your public airwaves by stopping by bradblog.com donate right now. Go ahead, do it right now. From Desi Doyen and myself, thank you. back. It's the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. So, you know, uh, it, it could be worse. I know the, uh, the conversation that I just had with uh, Mark Joseph Stern is a little bit maddening. And uh, yes, it's a bit frightening. Yes, elections have consequences and we are going to see what those consequences are. Yes, we are. And and we'll be just fine. Whatever yes. they are, we'll we'll make the best of it. Anyway, but I do hate to leave uh, I hate to leave folks with that. But yes, it could be worse. So just one way by way of reminder, one year ago today, this is what we heard from the president of the United States in the press room at the White House. Right, and then I see the disinfectant where it knocks it out in a minute, one minute. And is there a way we can do something like that? Uh, by injection inside or or almost a cleaning because you see it gets on the lungs and it does a tremendous number of the lungs so it'd be interesting to check that so that you're gonna have to use medical doctors with but it sounds yeah. it sounds interesting to yeah. me you're, you're gonna have to work with medical doctors if you're going to start injecting bleach inside of people but it sounds really interesting it does it does sound interesting so see it could be worse. That was one year ago today. Uh, we had a president of the United States talking about injecting people with <laughs> disinfectant. What a difference a year makes. And now we're at, what, 200 million vaccinations? You're right. Yep. Yeah. So see, it could be worse. Uh, so at least we don't have that anymore, right? And uh, even if I don't agree with everything he does... Uh, for example, as we I noted, uh, kicking the can down the road on uh, Supreme Court reform, for example, uh, when it comes to Joe Biden, I, I was on a uh, I was a guest on our friend Rick Smith's radio show last night. And as he said uh, to me, as we were talking, he said, Joe Biden wasn't my first choice or my second choice or my third choice, <laughs> or even my fourth choice, before going on to give Biden credit for what you know has been his so far surprisingly progressive agenda. 
coming from Rick, who is very progressive as a as a labor guy. Well, guess what? That progressive agenda appears to be paying off so far. We covered Donald Trump's approval ratings from time to time during the course of his nightmarish four year failed term. So it seems only fair to uh, note Joe Biden's from time to time as well, including some very hopeful new numbers that are just out today. First, this from last week, a majority of Americans, 59 percent, 59 percent approve of President Biden's handling of his job as he approaches the 100 day mark in office, according to a new Pew Research Center poll released just last week. The poll found Biden's job approval was up five percentage points in the April survey compared to uh, his 54 percent approval in March. Just 39 percent of those surveys surveyed said they disapproved of his work thus far. Biden's 59 percent approval rating is 20 percentage points higher than that of former President Trump's in a Pew poll from April of 2017, so at the same time in his presidency four years ago, and is uh, similar to the approval ratings of former Presidents Obama and, interestingly, George W. Bush in April of their first terms. The Pew poll found a whopping 72 percent of Americans believe the Biden administration has done an excellent or good job managing vaccine production and distribution. A huge 46 percent majority said that they like how Biden conducts himself on the job. That's a majority because it's compared to just 27 percent of those who don't. And 44 percent of respondents said they believe Biden has changed the tone of political debate for the better compared to 29 percent who say he has made it worse. (laughs) Really? Yes. Uh, Anyway, not bad. Uh, Other recent polls are different. Some are a bit lower uh, on the approval rating, but most are in a sort of similar ballpark for the new old president. Uh, but, uh, But some other polling numbers from today caught my eye as they specifically come from young people who have had it pretty rough in this country in recent years. Uh, we played on our previous show uh, a, a young woman from Mexico. Yes, one of the uh, Fridays for Future young climate activists mm-hmm. uh, speaking at Biden's Climate Summit for Leaders. So uh, who, who was none too happy about the way the world, what the world has left. Uh, exactly. For but her. she did praise and thank Biden for the moves uh, that he's yeah. made so far. Right. So, you know, young people have had it, you know, pretty terrible, as I said, Um and with an outlook for them on all sorts of levels that has looked pretty grim in recent years. And many of them, oh, by the way, were decidedly not Joe Biden fans previously. So uh, with that in mind, young Americans are more optimistic about the future and far more approving of U.S. leadership under President Biden than during ex-president Donald Trump's tenure, according to a new Harvard youth poll that was released today. Biden has hit the highest favorability rating, 63 percent among college students who are registered to vote, uh, who are registered voters of any president in the youth uh, in the youth polls. Twenty one year history. Nice. 
sitting at an overall 59% approval rating with, uh, with those surveyed. Biden's popularity among young voters also marks a dramatic U-turn for the 78-year-old president. At this time last year, only 34% of all young adults viewed Biden favorably, according to the spring 2020 Harvard Youth Poll. How many? Uh, let's see. Last year, 34%. This year, 59%. Wow. So a big jump there. 59% of 18 to 29-year-old Americans approve of Biden's overall job performance. 65% approve of his handling of the coronavirus. And 57% of race relations in the poll. Uh, another striking development from this same poll, young Americans are more hopeful about the future of America than they were in the fall of 2017. Striking, perhaps, though not surprising, if you consider where we were in the fall of 2017. Uh, that would have been almost a year after former uh, the former guy, as they call him, took office. At that point, only 31% of young Americans were hopeful about the future of America at the time, and 67% were fearful. Four years later now, 56% of young Americans are more optimistic, especially, interestingly enough, uh, among young people of color, according to a, the demographic breakdowns of this new Harvard Youth Poll. So while the hopefulness of young whites has increased 11 points from 35% to 46%, the changes in attitudes among young people of color are striking according to the pollster, whereas only 18 percent of young blacks had hope back in 2017, 18 percent. Today, 72 percent of young black people are hopeful. That is an increase of 54 percent from four years ago. Twenty nine percent of Hispanics called themselves hopeful back then. Today, that number is up 40 points to 69 percent. It's notable, by the way, that this polling was conducted before the verdict that found uh, former Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin guilty of murder and manslaughter in the death of George Floyd. So I don't know. Those numbers may be more, uh, maybe higher now, maybe more hope since that uh, since that verdict. Wow, that's really impressive. One of the pollsters uh, notes here that it wasn't long ago at all that a super majority of young black Americans and almost as many Hispanic Americans would tell me that they felt under attack in America simply because of the color of their skin. But that, apparently, no more. And for all the caricatures of young Americans, the poll found that young people are open-minded, more likely to be politically engaged than they were a decade ago. And that would be during Barack Obama's term. Uh, and they favor government solutions to problems. Good, because we're going to need them. 36% of young Americans are politically active now, with young black voters 41%. Uh, the most active among that group. That's a 12-point difference from a uh, 2009 poll that found in the fall uh, uh, after Obama's election that just 24% of young Americans considered themselves to be politically active. 24% under Obama, now 36% under Joe Biden. That 
I think, is a, an encouraging sign. The poll found a majority of young Americans uh, favor government intervention on issues of poverty, on issues of combating climate change, and on issues concerning health care. And from a messaging perspective, the pollster argues that the Biden administration should continue to focus on, quote, helping people who need it. What a concept. I know. You have to point this out. I guess you do at this point that that would be good politics, helping people who need it. Uh, the pollster said there's zero question that there was uh, that there was a, a significant generational shift when Gen, Gen Zers came into the election on every issue, supporting a bolder, stronger government. That's impressive. I mean, I'm I'm sort of. I'm really surprised that the numbers have jumped quite so much. I mean, I know that Biden was also not my first choice either, but or your I have, second choice, or my second choice, but I have or been your third choice. Very pleasantly yeah. surprised by how uh, I think this is something you've said before. It's like everything that would be normally controversial once Biden touches it, it becomes the moderate centrist point of yeah, view. Yeah. So you know, even his uh, his work on climate change has been the most progressive presented by any president ever oh, in by U.S. Far. history. And that's a low bar. By far. Well, yeah, I mean, because it was a big deal when uh, uh, Barack Obama said we're going to cut emissions by 28 percent. Oh, yeah. And the Republicans lost their minds, which, which they do no matter what anybody says. So Lost it. Yeah, I'm not <laughs> sure they ever had it. So he said 28 percent. Joe Biden now comes in and says, OK, that was a good idea. But how about 50 to 52 percent? Exactly. And the point of that also is that it's actually in line with what scientists say is needed in line but not nearly enough as uh, it is not enough uh, that's important to note but you know you have to start somewhere and and going any further than that would be probably a political dead end so at least he's going with something that is in line with what scientists say and will set us on that path so his that that's incredibly progressive and i'm i'm glad to see that young people are engaged enough and that recognizing they, that and recognizing this yeah. because they're going to have to live with the consequences of the decisions that we make today even as they are continuing to hold his feet to the fire to Absolutely. go further glad to see it and and uh, one more point here from this poll which i think is also encouraging actually facebook and twitter are ranked as the least trusted institutions <laughs> Uh, apparently there was uh, like 16 institutions that were included in the survey, but an overwhelming majority of young Americans, more than three in four, have little trust in Facebook or Twitter, quote, to do the right thing. Good. See, they are very smart. Yep. Facebook is ranked as the least trustworthy of the 16 institutions in the survey, with only 19 percent of young Americans who trust the social media platform to do the right thing all or most of the time. On the other hand, young Americans also don't trust the media, Wall Street or Congress, which might also be a very good thing. We are all in favor of skepticism around here. Not cynicism, but skepticism, because cynicism, at least as I see it, is a loss of hope. And as Jesse Jackson used to say, I think we all need to keep hope alive. And on that hopeful note, we have got to get out. My thanks to our guest today from Slate.com, Mark Joseph Stern. To my producer, as always, Desi Doyen, and to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's program, download it anytime for free at bradblog.com. That is made possible 
as are we, as is everything at bradblog.com, made possible only by reader and listener support. Those of you who stop by bradblog.com slash donate. You can also drop me email if you like. I am bradcast at bradblog.com. I believe you can just, you know, PayPal, by the way, to bradcast at bradblog.com <laughs> if that's easier than going to the website. You will also find me on the Twitters and the Facebooks, trusted or not, at the Brad Blog. We will see you there. Until we see you here next time, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. Oh, oh, oh.